thank you, Kelly. And I think we should uh, recognize Kelly's apparently inexhaustible ability to run Zoom meetings. We are her 54th um, in the last few weeks. So um, I think she deserves special recognition for that. Um, you will notice um, Eileen Yakman was going to uh, be a co-presenter today, but we had uh, a magistrate's office with 50-some hearings today and tomorrow, so she is helping to deal with those. So it'll just be Adam and me uh, today. We are both with Neighborhood Legal Services. Our emails are on this slide. Uh, you feel free to contact us if you have bankruptcy questions. Uh, we both enjoy bankruptcy and um, be happy to help anybody uh, who, who has uh, anything they want to talk about. Um, Adam is advancing the slides. So next one, please. So today is really a uh, follow-up to a session we did a few weeks ago, which was part one, and that covered the basic ideas of uh, consumer bankruptcy. Today, we're focusing more on the actual practical things. What papers do you need to file and uh, what information do you need to get to be able to do that? And we're also going to talk about the 341 meetings. That's the meeting of creditors, uh, which is required in every case. Um, the, these 341 meetings, if you're lucky, that will be the only hearing your client has to go to uh, during the case. Uh, that would be true in Chapter 7 and in Chapter uh, 13. So if, if things go wrong or you do some litigation, then certainly there may be times when your client has to show up. But uh, in a simple case, the 341 is the only thing they are going to have to attend. Uh, right now, they are either over the phone in Chapter 7 or on Zoom for Chapter 13s, at least in the Western District. And uh, so it's easier than ever uh, for a client to participate. Um, next slide. So we talk about the schedules. These are the papers that have to be filed in a bankruptcy case. And some of them actually are called other things. There's the petition, that's the first few pages. And then there are various lettered schedules that have to be filed. But typically people just call the whole thing uh, the schedules. There are official national forms that have to be used. And I have the link to those, those are, uh, online fillable forms and that's really all you need uh, to get your case filed. Um, most offices that do any number of bankruptcies use software to complete them because it's a whole lot easier than retyping everything on each page, but um, you, you don't need software. You could just use these forms. Um, the software we have is next chapter. Um, Adam, what's your opinion of next chapter? So uh, we, we used to use a, a different uh, software and I believe next chapter had, had bought out this other software in, in an attempt to kind of make it easier to understand and make the, um, make the software uh, fillable forms kind of more correlative to the actual national form. So what I've seen of it so far, uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. I think it makes it easier to look at the software and then transfer it over directly to what the actual national forms look like. So in my opinion, I think it was, I think it was an upgrade. Um, I know a lot of places use best case and um, 
it probably doesn't matter a whole lot what you use. I would just go for uh, something that seems user-friendly and doesn't cost too much. Um, so the schedules, the paperwork is almost exactly the same, whether you're filing a Chapter 13 case or a Chapter 7 case. Um, and these are about the only differences. In Chapter 13, you, in addition to filing all the schedules, you file a plan, which is your proposal of what creditors are going to be paid. Um, and in a Chapter 7, you don't file a plan, but you do file something that's called the Statement of Intention. We'll go over that a little bit more. But um, as you can say, the, the, the great bulk of, of the paperwork is going to be the same for any case uh, that you're going to file, any consumer case. The, um, the schedules are used by businesses too. So there are a lot of questions that seem kind of funny sometimes uh, when you're doing it in the context of, of an individual or, or a couple, uh, you know, people that you're filing for, you know, it asks if they have any toxic waste dumps. Um, it asks about their livestock. Um, and, but you just have to keep in mind that it's because uh, these forms are the same uh, for other types of bankruptcy too. Um, the um, case can be filed as an emergency. And if you're filing an emergency, uh, you only have to file the petition, which is just a few pages with very minimal information required. It's basically your client's name and address um, and an indication that they want to file bankruptcy. So um, you, if you start doing bankruptcies, you'll pretty quickly uh, conclude that it's good for you to be organized so that you can file a, an emergency case in a hurry. So you know, it's, it's pretty easy to be ready to do that. Um, and uh, there are two counseling courses uh, that have to be taken. Uh, one has to be taken before the bankruptcy is filed, and one has to be taken after the bankruptcy is filed. Um, the um, the, the pre-petition filing, uh, the counseling course has to have been taken uh, within 180 days before the bankruptcy case is filed. So if you have a client and you know, they're sort of dragging their feet and it's taking a long time to get their case ready, just you need to keep that in mind that there is a deadline um, by which you have to use uh, that credit counseling certificate. If, if it goes stale, then they just have to take it again. So it's not a big problem, but you don't want to be ready to file only to find out that you don't have a valid um, counseling certificate. And the court will notice. So, you know, don't, don't think that you could file it and, and it will just work out okay. Um, you can actually use the same certificate for more than one case. We've had that happen. Uh, so the only requirement is it has to have been taken uh, within the 180 days. And, um, there are in the code there, you can theoretically uh, ask for a waiver of the requirement. And if your client is physically or mentally um, disabled and unable to do the counseling, you could ask the court uh, for a waiver of the requirement. Um, and you know, if you establish it, then you'll get that waiver. There's another way to ask for it. You can ask for a 30-day waiver so that you don't have to take it before the case is filed, but can take it within 30 days. Um, 
I do not recommend that. We we have a very strict policy in our office that we do not exercise that option because we have never had the judges approve it. Um, so it, it's just not worth it. It's it's easy enough for the client to get the credit counseling. Um, Adam, what? How would you usually recommend if a client is, um, you know, if you want to file bankruptcy in two days, what would you tell the client? About um, the so usually I, I recommend that they do it via phone. It is possible to do on the internet, but um, I usually find that, you know, internet access is oftentimes a problem with our clients. And I do think it takes longer over the internet. You know, they, they make sure that you stay on the window for a specific amount of time when, you know, if you do it over the phone, you can get in contact with, with a live person and, and they can kind of walk you through it, which may help answer some of the client's questions as well. Um, and I feel like it's usually just quicker that way. I mean, you can realistically get it done. Um, I mean, you don't want to wait until the last minute, but you can realistically get it done in, in one, maybe two days if you, if you uh, really need to, to make it happen. So I usually recommend that they do it uh, via phone. And um, well, I guess you'll probably get into the cost and everything. Um, yeah, I, I should get into the cost. Uh, it does cost money to take these courses, but um, if you are 150% uh, of poverty or lower, there's a presumption that you're eligible for a waiver of those costs. Um, for any agency to be approved to provide this uh, bankruptcy counseling, they have to uh, convince the uh, U.S. trustee's office that they do provide um, IFPs uh, for these costs. And you will quickly find out sort of which agencies make it easier or harder for your client to show um, that they're entitled to a waiver. And then you'll steer clear of the ones that require uh, extensive documentation, which can be hard for your clients to provide. Um, so, but that, that's just something to keep in mind. There is a cost, but you can ask for a, a waiver. Um, so there are Go ahead. I was going to say that that's the, the reason that I brought that up is also kind of facilitating that issue is much easier over the phone than it is uh, online as well. Okay. Um, there, there are deadlines um, for the post filing requirement. Um, so you cannot take both of these uh, courses at once. Uh, you have to take the pre-petition filing before the case is filed um, and the post-petition one after the case is filed. It can be one day after. Um, you don't have to wait until your 341 meeting or anything. It just has to actually be taken after the case has been filed. Uh, there are deadlines in both chapter seven and chapter 13 about when that post-petition um, counseling has to be taken. Uh, in chapter seven, the deadline is that it has to be taken um, within 60 days of the first scheduled uh, meeting of creditors. So if that meeting of creditors gets postponed, it does not extend uh, the deadline for taking the uh, post-petition counseling. Uh, in a chapter 13, there, there's no specific deadline. It's a lot more uh, nebulous. It, uh, the deadline is before the final payment is due. So that can, that's likely to be years from when you file the case. Um, our experience is that the client will never be more uh, eager to <laughs> do what needs to be done than they are in the beginning of the case. So uh, we, we try to get them to take that post-petition course as soon as possible, just because um, it's, it's, a, it's a bad consequence uh, if you don't take that second course. Uh, you do not receive a discharge in the case, even if you've done 
everything else that was required of you. So um, it's very important to, to get that uh, second one done. Um, you can ask for an extension of that. I've done that a few times. It, it always seems kind of lame because anybody should be able to get it done uh, within the time periods, but uh, sometimes they don't and sometimes the court will be nice about it and give you extra time, but don't just let that deadline run, you know, file a motion and ask for extra time if you've got any sort of reason to request it. Um, next slide. So this is how you will feel if the client brings in shopping bags full of their papers. Um, when you tell them that you need uh, information from them in order to uh, complete the schedules. Um, it is very important to uh, get as much information as you can. And we're going to spend some time on what all you need and how to get it. Um, it's, it's not that hard to do, but it can be time consuming. So you have to sort of be geared up for it. Uh, we're lucky in Pittsburgh, we have law schools, so we can hire law students. And typically, um, they are the ones who gather this information. And I know some legal services programs either do not have local law schools, so they don't have that option. But it's, um, it's good to have someone who knows what they're doing, who, who understands that the information they're getting and, and gives it some thought. You know, it's not a purely clerical thing. You need someone who understands what's happening and what it means if they come across a piece of paper that says your client's getting trust income every month. Um, uh, next slide. So here is what we recommend, energetic investigation. Um, and um, so the first thing is, I think this is pretty typical. I don't know if other programs do this or not, but uh, we give the clients a questionnaire. Uh, I don't remember how many pages it is. Adam, do you remember? I think it's like 25 or 26 pages, something around, around there. Yeah, which is pretty a daunting thing to give someone. Um, so, and and it's not the simplest thing. We've struggled through the years trying to rewrite it. Um, but um, you do need to know what your client says about their debts. I, I would never suggest that you skip this process. This you know first point here. Um, because this is your client's case, you need to know what they're going to say to these questions that you're answering when you fill out the schedules. So the National Consumer Law Center Bankruptcy Manual has a sample questionnaire, and I think that formed the basis for ours, and then we've sort of tweaked it uh, as we've gone along. Um, get your client's papers together. Um, ask them to bring in copies of their bills or, you know, whatever they have. Um, the questionnaire identifies things that you'll need, which are, you know, copies of tax returns, copies of pay stubs. Um, and so there really is a, a fair amount of effort that the client has to put into this. Um, and the better organized they are, the better result that you will get. And um, you will probably experience what we have, which is that there's a wide range of uh, client um, sort of 
you know, how they approach this. I've had clients who prepared the spreadsheets and, you know, just had everything so organized, every detail, um, every question answered. And then you may have a client who's illiterate, but you're not aware of that. And so they do n basically nothing. They come in for a meeting with you and bring a questionnaire, which they say is completed and there's nothing there. So in that case, you just need to, you know, help them get the information as, as best you can. Um, I, I always uh, schedule an appointment with the client, at least, actually, I'm still doing that. Uh, but, you know, if you don't, if you're not meeting with your clients in person at all, um, then you would have to figure out how else to do this just over the phone. But I, I think the best practice is to have them put some effort into it. And then you review what they've done, identify gaps, and figure out how to fill them. Um, credit reports, very important. And um, we'll talk about that a, a, a little bit more in a minute. Um, search of public records, super important. You will find out all kinds of things that your client probably doesn't even know. Um, and so you need to uh, put the effort into finding out for yourself. So here's one reason you need to do that is that um, the, one of the federal rules of bankruptcy procedure says that the attorney's signature certifies that after an inquiry reasonable under the circumstances, um, this document is warranted by existing law or proposed in good faith. So I would say it is not reasonable under that rule to rely solely on information provided by your client. I think an attorney has um, an obligation to do more than that um, because they talk about an inquiry. Um, so, you know, what is reasonable under the circumstances, we luckily have never been forced to defend uh, in our cases, but, but that could happen. Um, I would also point you to the bankruptcy petition itself where uh, the attorney's signature at the end of those few pages um, is making a statement, and I'm reading this from the petition itself. It says, I have no knowledge after an inquiry that the information in the schedules filed with the petition is incorrect. Um, so, uh, so that, in addition to this rule 9011, I think makes it clear that the attorney is to go make an inquiry. Um, and so we are, one of the big reasons for this session is to help you make that inquiry. Next. So credit reports, very important. Uh, you're probably all aware of the basics about how credit reports work. Um, there are three major credit bureaus, um, and that's uh, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. They uh, all, so th those are the official ones. There are lots of other places uh, to get information, but th those are the ones you usually care about. Those are the ones you're trying to get. Um, this website, annualcreditreport.com, is the only place you should try to get a copy um, of those credit reports. Every consumer is entitled to a free report every year from each of these three uh, credit bureaus. So we usually try and get two of them. Uh, for the purposes of preparing the bankruptcy, leaving one of them for the client to access uh, shortly after they filed the bankruptcy and see how things are going, see if the bankruptcy is reported properly. Um, 
that kind of thing. So it's, it's important to get this because you'll see a lot of things on there uh, that the client may well have forgotten about because if they owed a little bit of money you know, to some store credit card and the store gave up and hasn't contacted them in two years, uh, your client probably doesn't have any old bills lying around and may well have forgotten all about it, uh, but it may show up on the credit report and you want to list it. Um, so it's, don't skip this part. Sometimes it's hard to get it before you file, um, in which case uh, I would file it as an emergency buy yourself a little extra time, hope you get the credit report uh, before your next deadline comes up. Um, there are lots of other websites which say free credit report, but they end up charging you for something or other. So just go to this one. Um, Adam, anything else? I know you've dealt a lot with people in their credit reports. Anything else to add on um, that? Yeah. So how the process actually works is that they will, um, you, know, you have to put in a little bit of biographical information about the client and then uh, it kind of uh, formulates a set of questions to ask the client about they basically pull financial background questions uh, from that name social security number all of the biographical information and the uh, the client will have to answer those questions to for, to have them pull up the specific credit report um, sometimes you just get a, a, a set of bad questions and they're not able to uh, to get the credit report for you you can kind of just refresh and try to get it from that same uh, provider, uh, again, whether it's uh, Equifax, Equifax, Experian, or TransUnion. So sometimes, you know, it, it will take a couple tries to get them, but um, it is worth it to make sure that you get them, like Kathy said, and, and usually to get two, just to uh, reference them against each other and make sure that you're covering um, all of the potential debts that the, uh, that the client may have. If you are aiming only for one, Adam, is there one you think is the most useful? Um, I think that they're all useful. It really is personal preference, I think, as to how they are um, actually, um, how, they, how they look physically. Sometimes some of them are easier to read than others. Uh, so, you know, if you find one that you think is easiest to read for yourself, that might be the best one. Um, but uh, after getting used to all three of them, I think that they're all, they're all um, fairly the same uh, personal preference. Okay. You can get it online. Uh, you can, if, and if that doesn't work or if you fail to convince the uh, website that you are a human, uh, then you can also request it by phone actually, um, or send in a, a written request. So there are those three ways to try to get it. And as soon as you think that you might be filing bankruptcy for this person, you should start trying to get the credit report because um, it can take a while, um, but it is important. Uh, next slide. So this is a checklist and this is just something that we devised at Neighborhood Legal Services and um, keep current. I put it in the materials, uh, not because anyone else will be able to use it exactly as is, but to show you just what we have found useful. It's a many page checklist probably seven, nine pages. Um, and it's kind of a chronological um, look at what kinds of information are you gonna need to know about um, in a bankruptcy case. So it starts with uh, what you need to know before you even file. You have to check to see if, what the client's previous bankruptcy history is all those kinds of things. Uh, and then uh, one of the big benefits of this is that there are live links to different websites. So it's very quick to use this. 
and it is very useful for us in Allegheny County because we are fortunate enough to have a whole lot of public records available online for free. So that greatly helps our efforts to get information and to meet that standard of reasonable investigation uh, when we're preparing a bankruptcy case. So it's in the materials, feel free to adapt it for your own use, however you want. If you have any good ideas for things to add to it, uh, please email me and let me know. Uh, we're always, uh, sometimes I will add something to the list because a, a uh, trustee at the 341 meeting asked a question. That's how I found out about some of these uh, sites. So it's, um, it's really fast once you get used to it. Uh, I always encourage people to use this in every case that they're uh, working on. It helps you keep a record of, uh, to demonstrate to yourself and potentially to the U.S. trustee if your case gets audited, uh, that uh, you did check all these things, that you went way beyond what would be considered maybe a reasonable inquiry and you were very thorough and exhaustive. So uh, you can see in this page, maybe too small to see, hopefully you can see it, but just some, some uh, this is just a sample of different sites that, that we would check. We would check the civil court records, the criminal records, because there could be fines um, that show up in a criminal case that you need to list on the bankruptcy. Um, we look at the MDJ records and there are uh, if, if someone owns real estate, then there's a whole different set of additional places you would look. We're fortunate enough, we can look up our mortgages um, and deeds. And so we've found out all kinds of useful things that way. Uh, you do not want to be that lawyer who gets to court only to have someone ask a question and it, it turns out it's news to you because your client didn't tell you. Uh, this is a way to uh, inform yourself um, and do the best possible job in preparing the papers uh, for your client. Um, so I also am a big fan of just doing something once. Uh, so if you use this list and you write down, um, check this site on this date, then you know, you don't have to go back again. You don't wonder if you check that properly. Uh, so I, I'm a fan of checklists, as Adam knows, uh, but I think it, it, helps, it helps us be thorough and it helps us avoid duplication. Uh, next slide. All right, so this is uh, my first slide here. Um, so I'm gonna be talking about the uh, documents needed to file an emergency, uh, an emergency filing, uh, which Kathy had detailed before a little bit, something that you can do to get the, uh, the protection of the bankruptcy, you know, get the stay um, underway before actually completing uh, all of the documents needed for the, uh, the complete petition. Um, so things that you need uh, when you file the emergency uh, are going to be um, the petition, the list of creditors, um, which is another reason why you know, it's important to make sure that you try to get the credit reports done as soon as possible so you know what creditors you're looking at. Um, and the Western District has this local form 29 as well, which is kind of another list of creditors uh, that you file. Um, there's a mailing matrix and then like a text document that you need to file. So the court has access to all of the, um, all of the, uh, the creditors and the credit counseling certificate. Uh, so like Kathy said, you usually want to get that done before you file the emergency. There is uh, that option to 
push it off for 30 days. But as she said, that's, that's not a practice that we, um, that we use. And you also have to address how you're going to handle the filing fee. Um, so you can pay it, um, which is a, a rarity. Um, you can file a petition to pay it in installments or uh, in the chapter seven, uh, you can request a complete waiver of the filing fee. Um, so uh, what, the reasons that you would file uh, an emergency, uh, basically if you need that protection very quickly. So if there's going to be an eviction, uh, utility termination, some sort of tax or sheriff sale, and you need, you need to get uh, the protection, you know, ASAP, as uh, Kathy had previously said, you can do this in, um, I mean, you can fill out the paperwork uh, in a matter of minutes, as long as you have the, the, uh, the uh, information on hand. Uh, so realistically, you can get this whole thing done in, in a few days if uh, your client is, is cooperative and, and has the, um, has the, uh, the information for you. Um, part of this as well um, is, is uh, a, a part of the end of the, uh, the petition discusses a, a 342B form. Uh, this used to, and I think we'll discuss this a little bit later as well, but this is the form uh, basically certifying that you've given uh, the, the client, the debtor, uh, an informational sheet just discussing the different types of bankruptcy um, and things of that nature. And it used to need to be filed and signed. Uh, now, a signature at the end of the petition verifies that you've given that to your, uh, to your client. Um, and another thing that we'll discuss a little bit later, there's a question on here discussing whether you have uh, landlord-tenant uh, judgment against you. Uh, and if you answer yes to that question, uh, uh, you'll have to file a supplemental form uh, to the, um, the original petition. But once you have uh, these things here, you know, the, the petition, the list of creditors, the uh, credit counseling, and uh, addressing some way to pay, the, uh, to pay the filing fee, you can go ahead and get that, um, get that emergency filed uh, and then get the protection. You have to complete that within, um, within 15 days and you can file another extension uh, for 10 days in order to, to get the information you need to figure out the rest of the schedules, um, which I, is usually fairly common just because sometimes there's some more in-depth information that you need. Um, but you know, after that extension, you have to have, uh, have, to have the rest of that information in. Um, so moving on here. Adam, one um, more thing about the uh, filing fee is that for in chapter seven, where you can ask for a waiver of it, as you said, um, they use the same standard that I mentioned for asking for a waiver of the credit counseling fee. Uh, the, the court standard is that are, are you 150% poverty or lower? And in addition to that, are you unable to make payments in installment? So we actually have had the ju judges sometimes um, deny the request for a waiver, uh, even when the client met that first prong, when their income was below the 150%. But for some reason or another, uh, the judge had reached the conclusion after looking at the papers uh, that they could make the payments in installments. So and that seems harsh to me. Uh, I think anyone whose income is that low should automatically be uh, entitled to a waiver, but that is not what the code said. And at least our judges uh, sometimes uh, do look at that second prong and say, no, you just, you have money sitting in your bank account. We see that you do, you've revealed that on your schedules. So use that money to pay the filing fee. If I could just interrupt, I'm sorry. I just need to launch the first CLU poll box. It'll be up for about a minute and a half. And Kathy and Adam, please um, feel free to continue. Okay. Um, so 
Um, what, you know, now we discuss what are the other forms that make up the schedules? What, uh, what other uh, forms are supplementary? You know, what else needs to go into this to, to do the actual completion? You know, if you're going to file it as a completion or if you need to finish up with the, um, with the emergency. Um, as we discussed, you know, you're going to need to fill out that petition. Um, outside of that, you start to get to the lettered schedules. So your A and B is going to be your assets, you know, your personal and your real property. Getting into Schedule C, which we discussed a little bit last time, you'll get into your exemptions. Um, after that, you'll move into uh, Schedule D, which is your secured debts. Um, and then E and F are, are looking at your unsecured debts. There's uh, priority and non-priority uh, unsecured debts as well. Um, and, and then after that, you'll get into a couple other things. I think I'm uh, on G, which is uh, executory contracts and unexpired leases, which I, I will get into a little bit more in depth later on. Um, H is co-debtors, and then I will be your income, and J will be your expenses. So you you know you can kind of simplify these for the um, for the client. You know they're not going to know what a schedule I is, but if you can say what's your income, you know they, they'll know that. Um, we have here this uh, this this uh, SOFA, this SOFA, which is the Statement of Financial Affairs which is kind of like a, a more broad um, snapshot of, of your financial situation. It asks about, um, you know, your prior income. It asks about your previous address, your current year-to-date income, uh, various questions about your financial past. So if you've transferred or sold any property, if you've given any sum of money to charity, if you have any um, property that somebody else is holding for you, uh, things of that nature. So kind of more uh, broad uh backwards looking questions about your financial history, uh, seeing, you know, what you've done financially prior to filing for the bankruptcy. Um, it's usually not too big of a deal for our clients. You know, our clients aren't really transferring, uh, you know, large sums of property or, you know, giving large sums of money to charity. Um, so, uh, but that one is a little bit intensive. And then looking at the current monthly income, which here is uh, neither current monthly, uh, nor actual all of your, nor actually all of your income. Um, what this is basically is an average of your income for the last six months. Um, but there are certain things that you don't include on here, like social security, which as you know, a large, uh, a large portion of our clients, um, you know, are in fact, uh, getting social security that, so realistically they would, they would describe that as their income, but for the purposes of this form, um, it's not. So, you know, as on the slide, it's, it's not really current, it's not really your monthly income and it's not all of your income. So, you know, pay attention to that and make sure that you're uh, putting only what is required on there. Um, and then kind of where the, so as Kathy said, all of these things uh, on the, on the upper part of the slide are common amongst the two types of bankruptcy. Uh, under the lower part of the slide in chapter 13, you'll need to file a plan, which if you remember last time, the 13 is basically the, uh, the court, the court approved uh, repayment plan. So you'll need to file that in chapter seven, you'll need to file what's called the statement of intentions um, or statement of intention, which will discuss how you're going to handle any potential uh, secured claims that you have, or looking back, if you have any of those uh, unexpired uh, leases or executory contracts, so you have to discuss how you're going to handle those things. Um, so they ask for, they, they look at this and sort of, I feel like they're coming at it from different angles. Um, you know, that it, it, they, it seems very repetitive sometimes. This, that's, that's actually, I have that written down and I just glossed over that. I think that's a very good point. There, a lot of these questions are, you know, a lot of the things covered in the statement of financial affairs are covered in your assets, your debts, your income and expenses. So they're, 
they're kind of um, looking at the same financial information in various different ways, kind of cross-checking that, making sure that, you know, you're staying consistent in your answers. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's a great point is that, you know, sometimes when you're going through these things with the client, they're like, you know, I already answered this question three, four times and, you know, you have to go through all the questions, but they're just really making sure that the answers are consistent and um, that, you know, everything matches up across the schedule. So I, that is a, that is a really good point. Yeah, and as the lawyer on the case, you want that to be consistent too. You you want to identify anything that seems weird, um, and be ask the client about it. You know, before the court finds out about it, you need to know how to answer the question. Um, and we tend to uh, supplement the forms. Well, if if you see an issue and you know that the trustee is going to want to going to ask you questions about it, just tell them up front. Um, my goal in, when I'm filing these papers is that nobody has to ask me any questions about it because I knew what they'd care about and I told them already. Um, and it's just, it, I mean, it makes your life easier. So it's somewhat a self-serving uh, approach, but it also, I think people appreciate it. You want to have the reputation for doing a good thorough job on cases um, and uh, you want to understand your case. So to, if you understand your case, you know what's, what issues there are, you know what looks weird, uh, you know what needs a little uh, additional information that isn't asked for on the form. So we just type up something else, we add it to it. Um, so that actually was a question that I just popped up, you know, how do you provide the supplemental information? Uh, so oftentimes on all the, the uh, software and the bankruptcy schedules, there's a spot for notes that you can add, or you may have to provide um, supplemental materials, uh, which we'll get into a little bit later, when, before you have your 341 meeting, or, or actually even when you're filing, you know, you can have some supplemental materials um, added on to discuss those, to discuss those issues. Um, so moving on here. Um, next is, is the petition. We've already discussed this a little bit, but I'll go more in, in depth about what the actual petition is. So this, this is called the voluntary petition. Um, very, very basic stuff here. It's mostly sort of the, uh, identifying the debtors, showing that they actually want to file for bankruptcy. Um, it's important here. The most important thing with the petition, I think, is to make sure that you have the debtors that you want to, to have filed. Um, you know, we had talked last time about filing jointly. That's a decision that you need to make up front. Um, as it says here, you cannot amend the petition to add a debtor later. You can amend, I believe, everything or nearly everything else, um, but you cannot amend it to add, um, to add a debtor. So you need to make the decision up front. Are you filing individually? Are you filing jointly? Uh, because that is something you cannot amend later. Um, and as we had discussed in the past, uh, in the last, two, last slide, I think, um, you, know, you need to make sure that one, you give that 342B notice to the debtor. You can explain it to them it's it's informational in nature and your signature on the petition uh, verifies that you have given that to the debtor so make sure that you do that before you go ahead and sign the petition uh, and get that filed um, so some of the the biographical information that's on here you know your name current address uh, what type of bankruptcy you're filing so chapter 7 chapter 13 um, they do ask on here how you're going to handle the filing fee uh, whether you own uh, or rent your residence uh, if you own a business, once again, how you're handling the credit counseling, if you've already done it, um, if you uh, think that you uh, can, can waive that uh, or the 30-day extension, which, you know, we don't recommend. Um, then there's a, a spot for uh, estimated number of creditors and estimated uh, debt. I believe it goes in intervals of 50,000. Um, 
So usually, you know, it's, it's less than 50 creditors and, and uh, either 50,000 or in, in cases where there is a mortgage, perhaps sometimes, you know, the next spot up, but it's usually uh, fairly basic stuff, uh, estimated amounts. Um, so, you know, the petition is basically just the, the very basic uh, earliest uh, thing that, that you are going to have to get the basic information for. Um, as we had discussed a little bit earlier as well, at the end of the petition, there's that slide that uh, will ask you about uh, your, your landlord tenant status. So if you have a, a landlord tenant judgment against you, um, this is very important to make sure that you know, um, you know, if there is an LT case going on, if there is a judgment, if the judgment is final, um, because uh, as it says here, if your client has a judgment for possession against them, uh, the automatic stay may not remain in effect unless ongoing rent is paid into the court and the judgment is paid off within 30 days of filing. Um, so that can present a little bit of an issue depending upon where you're at procedurally in the, the LT case. Um, if the judgment becomes final, either after the, the magistrate hearing or um, if the judgment is, if it's uh, reduced to a judgment either after um, an arbitration or a trial, um, then you run into this issue where, you know, you have to pay the ongoing rent into court and you have to pay off the judgment if it's curable um, meaning basically that um, if you pay the full amount, you can stay there. You have to pay that within 30 days of filing. Um, that's usually very difficult for any of our clients who have received uh, a pay and stay judgment and who are looking to file a bankruptcy to remedy that. Um, so usually in the best interest to just not let it get to that point. Um, here, if a de novo appeal was filed, then under PA law, there is no judgment. So if you have the option to file an appeal, uh, have a de novo hearing, that is a good way to get around it as well. Um, so you need to be careful to answer the questions on form 101 carefully. So what they will ask you is, uh, this is question 11 on the voluntary petition. It will ask you one, if you rent your residence and two, if the landlord has obtained uh, an eviction judgment. Uh, so if that is the case, uh, then you have to fill out this other form here, uh, which is called the 101A. Uh, which is a supplemental form to the to the voluntary petition. So I'll get a little bit more in depth on the, the LT stuff now. Um, so if the if you answer yes to both of those, you do rent. There is a, a judgment against you. Um, the first question on this asks you if that judgment is curable. So like I said, do you have the right to cure uh, the money judgment? Uh, it's called the pay and stay. Uh, if so, um, then uh, if you pay, you can stay. Um, the second asks if you have. Uh, the second question asks if you have paid your uh, rent that would be due during the 30 days after the filing um, into the bankruptcy court. Um, so the issue with this is that, uh, like we had discussed, after the first 30 days, uh, you have to pay the full amount, which is very difficult for, for clients to do unless it's a, a small money judgment. But if it is a small money judgment, then uh, you, know, you may consider a, a, not a, a bankruptcy alternatives to, uh, to um, to handle that. I do see a question here. Uh, what happens if there's a past possession judgment, but the client no longer lives in that unit? You still have to list it under 11. Uh, no, uh, because the, uh, the possession is what is at uh, issue here. So you're basically, you would be filing the bankruptcy in order to um, preserve your possession. So if possession is no longer an issue, uh, then whatever prior judgment that you would have would basically be uh, if there's any money uh, left over. Um, and I will say that in the handbook, hmm? yeah, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. It, it's not your residence at that point. The, mm -hmm. the judgment is for a different property. Yeah. Uh, so then that would just go into any, if you owe any money on, on that judgment, still, it would just be listed as uh, a debt that you have. 
Um, there actually is uh, an expansive list of kind of what happens in each different scenario uh, in the bankruptcy handbook that is attached in the materials. There's a lot of uh, moving parts, so it can turn out a lot of different ways. But I mean, in my opinion, um, and I'm primarily a housing attorney. So, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to not let it get to this point. Um, so in my opinion, you know, it would be best to just not let it get to this point where you are worrying about your client making that payment into the court within the 30 days, um, you know, either by filing the appeal um, and getting the bankruptcy done when you have a de novo uh, appeal going on. Yeah, I attached in the materials for this session a memo that I wrote long ago about all the different scenarios um, and what significance that would have for the bankruptcy. So that's, um, I, I think, a, a, an easy place to look to if you want to know, well, under this circumstances, they, they filed an appeal of this, but not that. What does that mean for the bankruptcy? Um, it's, it's all in that uh, memo that's part of the materials. Uh, so Tom had a question as well. Can the landlord agree to waive that restriction and accept payments through the bankruptcy? Um, uh, I've actually, I don't think I've ever run into this scenario. I mean, in a chapter 13, you're hoping to get this, you're hoping to get the, get it filed prior to any final judgment. So you can just end up paying the arrears and the current rent uh, within the plan. Um, with a seven, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, quite sure. Kathy, if you have some input on that. I think they could because the bad things happen if the landlord chooses to pursue their rights that they would have under the bankruptcy to proceed with the eviction. So the bank, the landlord could decide not to do that, uh, but you wouldn't have any way to um, enforce it. So it, that would be somewhat risky. So I think I'm going to turn this back over to Kathy here, I believe. And we also need to, I think, pick our pace up a little bit. So we'll try to do that. Okay, um, so the Chapter 13 plan, this is one of the things that's different about a Chapter 13 case. And we've talked about it before, so I, I won't belabor this, but it's your proposal of who you're going to pay. So it's not a list of all your debts. You've already done that on the schedules. It is just the, the uh, debts uh, that you plan to pay and how you're gonna treat them and how much they'll get. So you're filing it has to be approved. Until that plan is confirmed, um, it's not in effect. Um, all three of the Pennsylvania bankruptcy districts uh, have their own, they don't use the national plan form, they use a local um, sort of adaptation of that national form. So, um, and then that's mandatory. You have to use whatever your district says you have to use. Um, you can change it as, as time goes by. Um, chapter 13 cases go on for years. Um, so I, I don't know that I've ever had a case where I only had one plan. Uh, you know, your clients, the, the car they're trying to pay for is in an accident, so they don't want to pay for it anymore, or their rent goes up. All kinds of things change, and you file an amended plan. Um, pretty much anybody has the right to object to your plan. Um, the, the judges are the least likely because if you hopefully you won't get in front of a judge on your plan, but really everybody uh, has the right to say they don't like what you are proposing. Um, next slide. So this is one of the elements of a chapter 13. We talked in the earlier session about um, chapter seven is often called a liquidation bankruptcy. Um, and that's because if you're 
client has assets that exceed the exemptions that bankruptcy permits them, then those unprotected assets are sold uh, and the debtor gets to keep the amount of their exemption uh, and the unsecured creditors um, get uh, their share of the uh, other proceeds of the liquidated asset. Um, next slide. So in chapter 13, it's an alternative to the liquidation you would have in a chapter seven. So in a chapter 13, let's say the debtor keeps the asset that, has, uh, that exceeds the exemption limits, uh, but that means you're gonna have to pay the unsecured creditors some money. So in this little example that I have, um, the debtor has a house uh, and $75,000 worth of that house exceeds the exemption limits. So um, in a chapter seven, house would have been sold, unsecured creditors would receive that $75,000. In a chapter 13, uh, you would say, all right, we're going to uh, repay creditors. And so we don't want to sell the house, but we repay them that uh, $75,000. So here, but that doesn't mean it's actually going to cost your client $75,000. If there's only $20,000 of unsecured debt, then the debtor only will pay $20,000. They're not going to pay more than they owe to these creditors. Um, and then, let's say the debtor has listed $20,000 of unsecured debt. If those creditors don't file a claim, they're not going to get paid. That's the reason for a creditor to file a proof of claim in a chapter 13 case. So you only pay the creditors who file the claim and that could be significantly less um, than the amount of debt that your client listed. Uh, next page. So we have a question that popped up. If there is a mortgage, is there any way of saving the house in a chapter seven? I think this is something that we'll probably get into. Um, the, uh, this. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is. You don't automatically lose anything. It depends how much equity you have and whether the exemptions are sufficient to protect it. So you don't automatically lose anything. It just depends on the value of things. Um, so I want to talk about the best efforts um, and that is that the debtor has to commit their disposable income to the plan. So you have to pay attention um, to uh, your income and expense schedules that you're filing, um, because if, you, if it looks like your client has $1,000 left every month after you know, their expenses are paid and your plan is only for 200, the trustee's gonna say, what about that other $800 your client has left over? So you've got to be honest about it. I'm not suggesting that you fudge the numbers, but that could be a, a, a red flag to you that your client needs to be paying back those creditors in the 13, that they have too much income uh, to propose a plan that does not pay the unsecured creditors. Uh, next slide. Uh, one more quick question here too. So if not all of your creditors make a claim, would you have to do a new chapter 13 plan to account for potentially smaller payments if all the creditors don't make a claim? Yeah, your original plan, you would propose sort of what your client's exposure is um, based on how the numbers play out. Um, and then, yeah, I've, I've had this happen where there weren't many claims filed or I objected to some of them and then I filed an amended plan and reduce that amount that had to get paid. 
so this is a plan calculator. Um, this is also in the materials. It's a nice spreadsheet that we use and it, it makes it very easy for you to keep track of what's getting paid and what isn't. And if you want to change a number, then you see what effect that has. Um, so that's, that's all I want to say about the plan calculator. It's in the materials. Okay, um, so now I'll take over here. Uh, as if you recall, the, the major difference between the, the documents in the 13 and the seven is the 13 needs the plan that we just discussed, the seven needs this statement of intentions. So here, this discusses how you're going to handle secured debt in a chapter seven. So in a chapter 13, you know, you can pay that off through the plan. Here, the statement of intention uh, references back to schedule D, which is your secured creditors, and also schedule G, where you list your executory contracts and your unexpired leases. Um, although, as it says here, this is not uh, for residential rental leases. Uh, so two things are handled a little bit differently. Uh, for the secured creditors, uh, which are listed in Schedule D, you have four options. You can either surrender uh, the collateral. You know, so if you had a vehicle uh, that you're not planning on paying on, you could just surrender that. And, uh, and you know, that will not have to be addressed through the rest of the bankruptcy if you get rid of the property. Uh, you can redeem it, uh, which is paying the actual value of the property. Uh, to keep the uh, to keep the the property, uh, which is sometimes beneficial because uh, the property is worth less than the debt that is owed. Uh, there are some debts on this, or there are some uh, restrictions on this. Um, so it needs to be a consumer debt for kind of personal, tangible property. Um, but that is also an option. You know, if the actual value of the property is less than the the debt that you owe, um, there's reaffirmation. Uh, which is where the creditor and the debtor agree on new terms in what is called the reaffirmation agreement. Uh, so this, uh, then you would kind of, the, the debtor would take on those new terms and pay off the, uh, the debt with those new terms. Uh, and this uh, reaffirmation agreement would survive the bankruptcy, uh, the bankruptcy discharge. Uh, and then finally, you have the option to retain and pay, which is where you continue to make payments as normal, um, but you're actually no longer personally liable um, but the issue there is once the, uh, there's a bankruptcy discharge, uh, the creditor can still act on that uh, according to state law. And I do see a, a chat here. I'll, I'll respond um, to that, Adam. Just okay. okay. Um, so those are the four options there. And then for the executory contracts and unexpired leases, you just have to answer, will the debtor assume the lease? So are you going to continue to pay these things or are you going to kind of uh, to abandon that and not assume the lease? Um, uh, so you have to make that decision when you file the statement of intentions uh, as well. Uh, so we'll move on here. If I could just, I'm sorry, if I could just interrupt quick, I'm going to launch the second of the two CLE poll boxes. You'll have a minute and a half to respond. Attorneys, you must respond in order to receive credit. And thanks, Adam. Please continue. Okay, no problem. Um, so next we have the 341 meeting of the creditors. Um, so I, we're not going to have time to play this video, I don't believe, but uh, you can watch this. It's a really good walkthrough of what a, a basic kind of general 341 meeting of the creditors is going to be. Um, so this is basically once you have your once you have your case filed, you'll have to have a meeting with the creditors there, although the creditors don't always come, uh, mainly with the trustee. Um, so this is the only uh, appearance that is required of the debtor. Uh, unless something else compels their appearance. Um, it's usually simple. They're usually very basic questions. You should watch, um, should watch the video to get an understanding of, of what those are going to be, but I'll also discuss this a little bit in the next slide as well. Um, so these are both in chapter 13 and in chapter seven. Um, so what you will need uh, 
to do is check if there's any documents that need to be sent to the trustee in advance. Usually it's things like the tax returns and depending upon the trustee in a chapter seven, sometimes you have to send the petition and, and other documents that you had filed with the bankruptcy. Um, as we had said, the debtor and the council must attend. The creditors may attend, uh, uh, although um, you know they're usually not uh, necessary unless they have some sort of qualm. Uh, the debtor does need to either provide uh, their ID and their social security card or the attorney will have to verify that they did see those things and that they do in fact match with the, um, the ID, uh, the name, address, all of that, and the social security number that is on the, uh, the schedules that you had filed. Um, basically, the key here is to prepare your clients just to answer the basic questions. Review the documents, discuss the questions or possible problems that are likely to be asked, review all the claims and be ready to discuss those issues. So just make sure that your tenant or that your client has a basic understanding of what's on the schedules, why you ask them that, um, and, and anything of that nature. Um, so this should be fairly basic and the video will describes it uh, a little bit more in depth. And I think that is a, a good representation of what these meetings, um, are like, uh, and then moving forward to, uh, the, uh, Oh, actually, I believe Kathy is, I think that's back to you for the 341 in the chapter 13. Okay, um, very similar to the chapter seven, there's just more likely to be a, more of a discussion between the lawyer and the trustee and any creditors who show up um, about exactly what you're going for here. You know, sometimes it's not clear why you're doing what you're doing, so be prepared to explain that. Um, in, in our district, uh, the 341 meetings are scheduled before the claims bar date, so you can't get a final confirmation then, uh, but if you, it is in your interest to keep the creditors happy, um, and so if you can get an interim confirmation order entered, um, which is something they do routinely in our district, um, then that's good. That means the money can start flowing. Uh, next slide. This is just what happens after that. Uh, we've basically covered this. The big thing in a chapter seven is the post-petition financial management counseling, very important. Um, in a chapter 13, that deadline is years down the road, uh, but these cases uh, really go on forever. I, um, the, um, under the CARES Act, some of us have been extending existing uh, plans uh, to seven years. And so, you know, you uh, make friends with that client because you'll be with them for a while. Um, and that's, that's really it. I think we've covered everything. Uh, the next uh, page shows, next slide shows some resources. And um, Adam and I are happy to help. Eileen would be too, I'm sure. And Thank you, everyone, and uh, have fun with bankruptcies. Thanks, um, Kathy and Adam, so much for your time and for all the great information. Um, everybody, thanks for joining us, and everybody have a good rest of the day. Take care of yourselves. Thanks, Kelly.